Shana Tova, everyone. The week before the high holidays for me is what's affectionately known in our house as Super Bowl week. And it was the worst time possible for my phone to break. So I headed over to Apple to get a new phone, just in time for the release of the iPhone 6. And the guys who were selling these phones were so excited. And I was dreading this experience. I actually like technology, but I had a lot to get done, and going and getting a new phone was not on my agenda. So I walk in, and I tell them what happened to my phone, and I said, you know, I have the 5S. Should I stay with the 5S, or should I upgrade to the 6? And the guy goes, dude, you got to get the 6. <laughs> so I go, oh, okay, but the 6 is a lot more money. Can you tell me the benefits I'm going to get in the 6 versus the 5S? He goes, dude, the processor. It's got the AA processor, man. I said, well, what's that? And he said, uh, it's got two billion transistors in it, and it goes like lightning fast, like faster than the speed of sound or something, and it's like, it's amazing. So, um, so I said to him, I said, well, does that mean I'm going to drop less calls? He goes, dude, no, that's your antenna. I said, well, if it's got, like, such a fast processor, does that mean that I can, like, call my wife or call my mom faster? He goes, no, man, that's an antenna thing, too. I go, well, what about the Internet? Well, like, do the Internet faster? He goes, that's all about Wi-Fi, dude. So I said, well, what does the processor do? He says, well, you can have, like, 33 apps open at the same time, and it will go, like, so fast from one app to the other app, and you can play, like, six games and go, like, from one to the other and touch all these buttons. It'll go so fast, like, faster than you can even do this. It's, like, amazing, dude. So I finally stumped him, and I said, dude, I have a question for you. What is the purpose of having a phone that processes faster than our brains can? And he went, dude. <laughs> of any issue I've had with my phone, the speed of the processor wasn't on the top of the list. But I think it's emblematic that, in fact, we are processing so much more, so much faster than ever before. But is it more than we can handle? In my house... This is an average week. Monday, my son has guitar. Tuesday, he's got homework club. Wednesday, he's got speech. Thursday, soccer. Shabbat on Friday. And countless birthday parties and playdates throughout the weekend. And that's in addition to his homework and school projects and any other family obligations. And the scary thing is, his schedule is light compared to my daughter's. And the really scary thing is, their schedules are light compared to most of their friends. The older they get, the more programmed they are. It doesn't let up, it only increases. I think there are so many kids today that could actually benefit from having a personal assistant to keep track of their schedules. <laughs> and I've heard from so many of you, and even my own parents and in-laws, who come to our house any given week, and they literally get dizzy seeing the pace of all that's running and going on underneath one roof. And I think the reason you get dizzy is because a generation ago, 
We didn't work at that pace. And two generations ago, we surely didn't work at that pace. We were slower. And being slower allowed us to process more. My dearest friend, David Weitzman, is a rabbi in Florida, has a hero in life, and it's the 2,000-year-old man who is depicted by Mel Brooks. Now, my friend, David, is one of the slowest people I've ever met. I love him, but slow. And he says that the motto of his life is adapted from Mel Brooks's 2,000-year-old man. He said, it's one simple recipe, never run for the bus. That was the key to his longevity, never run for the bus. One of the things that we've done in our house to try and slow us down and take some time together is we sit on the couch as a family and we watch TV. But we don't just watch any TV, but because thanks to cable television, we watch the shows that Dory and I watched growing up. We watch Family Ties, we watch Silver Spoons, we watch The Brady Bunch, but our family favorite is Different Strokes. <laughs> There's nothing like watching my little boy, who's seven years young, come up and say, what you talking about, Dad? <laughs> Which was Arnold's catch line in the show. What Dory and I enjoy as a family, besides the wholesome storylines, is the fact that there's usually one storyline when we watch this show. Maybe Arnold's getting bullied, or maybe Kimberly has a big date with an older man, or maybe Willis got an F on his test and he lied to Mr. Drummond about it. But that's all that's going on. So much so that if I theoretically got up to refill my ice cream in the middle of such a show, I could come back and I wouldn't miss the lesson. And when the show's over, there was one thing that we could talk about and process and digest as a family. Now juxtapose that to one of our family shows that we love watching as well, but it's a modern show. It's called Modern Family, in fact. Now at that show, brilliant writing, brilliant cast, you normally have at least four or five simultaneous storylines that are woven together and magically converge as one at the end. And if I want to refill my ice cream, I thank God that we live in a time where we have DVRs and can pause live TV. Because if I miss one sentence or one event, it throws off the entire symmetry and synchronicity of the show. Because when they converge together, something might not make sense. In essence, the shows of today, they throw a lot at us. And when they do, you don't get much time to process all that's happening. And you surely can't talk about all four or five of the storylines. And what I'm concerned about is that the loss of our ability to sanctify time and to process is hindering us from being the very best people that we can be. This lack of time and processing, it's not limited to cell phones. And it's not limited to sitcoms. It can happen with countries too. Worrying about Israel keeps me up at night. And I spent a lot of sleepless nights this summer. One of the things I'm most worried about with Israel is that its citizens are not being afforded an opportunity to process what is happening to them. This notion was shared to me by one of my rabbis on Israel and someone who I am blessed to call a dear friend, Yossi Klein Halevi. Perhaps some of you have read some of his writings, and if you haven't, you should start today. 
So allow me to explain something that Yossi inspired in me, where I'm going to take a small snapshot of time, 60 days, two months, into Israel's 66 years of history. Let's start with June 12th of this past summer. News broke that three boys had gone missing, and we were reliving another nightmare. Kidnapped boys being held for ransom, not knowing their health and their whereabouts. The entire country came together and spent 18 days looking for the boys. But before they could gather the traction necessary, their bodies were found, dismembered, buried in a shallow grave 10 miles from where they were abducted. The next day, I joined 10,000 people to show up for the funeral for Eyal, Gilad, and Naftali. It was a lot to process and to take in. And I came home late that night from the funeral, and I just wanted to reflect and think and digest. But I awoke the next morning to horrible news that an Arab boy, a Palestinian, whose name was Muhammad Abu Khadir, was abducted outside of a mosque early in the morning before Ramadan prayers, and he was gruesomely murdered. Police had suspected it was a revenge killing, but we all had hoped that it wasn't. Two days later, our fears were confirmed. Khadir's killers were Jews looking to exact revenge for the murder of the three boys. But before I could go to the Khadir family tent outside of Jerusalem to offer consolation and to mitigate my embarrassment as a Jew, I was prohibited by the police for safety concerns because rocket fire and tension in Gaza was escalating dramatically. So now, before the shiva ended for the three boys, and before the mourning period for Abu Khadir could even begin in the Muslim tradition, Hamas opportunistically began lobbing about 40 or 50 rockets Israel's, day, Israel's way each day. And the conflict soon intensified to much more than a cross-border altercation. And that demanded that Israel call up 35,000 reservists. Calling up these reservists meant that weddings, bar mitzvahs, vacations would be altered and that they were going to have empty seats at them. It meant that each family would brace themselves for the dreaded knock on the door. Two more days, and Israel was hip deep in an air war. And two weeks after that, boots with Israeli boys and girls' feet in them were on the ground in Gaza. The loss of life increased dramatically, but we were hopeful because there was a ceasefire. We started to breathe a little easier. But then the ceasefire was broken, unprovoked, with rockets flying to Tel Aviv and to Jerusalem, which was more than just an attack. It was an attack on 75% of Israel, letting everyone know that rockets could reach them in all places and broadening the scope of this war. And just as we were trying to sigh relief again because of the miraculous work of the Iron Dome, keeping all of the threats out of the sky, we learned of threats that were underneath our feet. Terror tunnels, dug with the sole purpose of murder and kidnapping Israeli women, children, and the elderly. 34 tunnels uncovered and destroyed. And all we wonder is, did we get them all? We also soon learned that we were fighting two wars simultaneously. We were fighting a war with Hamas in Gaza, and we were fighting a war on the airwaves. CNN, 
MSNBC, Al Jazeera, BBC, every radio station you can imagine from across the globe, they were all demonizing Israel. And they were supported by the United Nations, who tried to paint a moral equivalency between Hamas and the IDF. This war was equally important, and we couldn't afford to lose either. So day after day, from kidnappings to murders to rockets to retaliations to Iron Dome to boots on the ground to tunnels to media attacks, UN accusations, 50 days come and go of war and loss of life, and a ceasefire is broken. And six days after that ceasefire, 1,000 acres of land was taken by Israeli government for increased settlements outside of Jerusalem. Whether you are hawkish or you are dovish, this move made us lose any inertia we had gained from world public opinion. And within hours, we were condemned by the United States, the EU, Australia, and the United Nations. And so many events happened in such a short snapshot of time, and we had no opportunity to process it. Israelis weren't afforded the time to process the death of the boys. They weren't afforded the time of what it meant for their country to have been responsible for the retaliation murder of Abu Khadir. They weren't given the time to process the loss and impacts of the wounds and deaths of the soldiers, 64 in total. They moved to the next thing, and the fighting was already forgotten. Minutes after the current ceasefire that we're in, papers and pundits across the world started to ask the question, who won the war? Wars are not decided with clear victors and losers anymore. On September 2nd, 1945, the Japanese foreign minister boarded the USS Missouri afloat in the South Pacific, and he signed the Instruments of Surrender, which effectively ended the war and clearly acknowledged a winner and a loser. But today, an asymmetrical war, winners and losers aren't declared instantly. In fact, it takes time, a long time, a really long time, and it takes patience. General Yaakov Amidror, who's the National Security Advisor to Israel, says that the only way we know if we won a war or lost a war anymore is with time. Allow me to explain. In 2006, Israel was forced into another war with Lebanon. It was a bloody war. It lasted 34 days, and we lost over 130 soldiers. But here we are, almost nine years later, and Lebanon has been a quiet border for us. All the rockets that have come over from Lebanon have not been claimed by Hezbollah, and its leader, Hassan Nasrallah, has not been aiming to put Israel in its crosshairs for fear of retaliation of his life. So today, most Israelis, including Amidur, would say, we won that war because we were afforded safety and security from the north. But at the time, we could never say it. It just takes time. With this in mind, we can ask the question, who really won the wars in Iraq? With Iran pursuing nuclear weapons, the growth of ISIS, who won? What has time really told us? Do all of us have the patience to process and give time to a conflict, to declare a winner or a loser? Or do we have to read the paper the day after to see, like a boxing match, who the victor was? Can we slow down our metabolism and allow time to dictate a winner 
before we do? So very much has happened in such a short time. It reminds me of what my grandmother always said when we went out to dinner. David, you're eating too quickly. You can't digest properly. And she was right. I would eat so quickly, I would get reflux and indigestion and heartburn. Won't the same thing happen here if we take in too much and don't digest properly? Processing for individuals is important. Processing for a country is important. But what about for a tribe? Sometimes events unfold at record pace by the time we start to process them. They no longer become irrelevant. Eleven months ago, the Pew Report on Judaism was released. And this was a game changer for the Jewish world. Any report, and especially the Pew Report, was meant to take the temperature of the Jewish world and to calibrate what areas need to be addressed Where do we need to focus attention in the future? I was captured with so many findings in Pew. For example, Pew told us 11 months ago that 94% of Jews were proud to be Jewish and would wear their identity on their sleeve or their head, as you were without reservation. Pew told us that many Jews felt Israel was less relevant in their life today and that Israel was totally secure. Pew told us that anti-Semitism was on the decline. And Pew told us that most Jews were worried about other minorities and religious groups because they thought they faced more discrimination than Jews. Not even a year has passed. And so many of the events of this past summer, whether it was the downing of a Malaysian air flight, ISIS beheadings, the war in Gaza, pogroms in France, all it took was two short months, 60 days, And so many of the key findings within the Pew Report are irrelevant. Irrelevant. Much of that report has now become, not all, but much, immaterial. Before we as a community, locally and globally, have the chance to calibrate, address it, and change it. Because we are all moving so quickly. So quickly that a year's worth of research and millions of dollars worth of findings are reduced to being irrelevant and immaterial before 12 months could even pass, before we even were afforded the opportunity to process and to calibrate. Do you all remember Tyler Clementi, a blessed memory? He was the young Rutgers student that had a sexual encounter with another man in his dorm room. Without his knowing, his roommate set up a webcam and broadcast the encounter for others in the dorm to watch. When Tyler learned that his privacy had been raped, he was mortified. He went to the George Washington Bridge and he jumped to his death. I remember preaching in the wake of that tragedy that we had become victim to technology that advanced faster than our moral code. Freshmen in college learned how to remotely operate a webcam before they learned how to appropriately behave with this new technology. If our machinery runs faster than our morality can keep pace with, don't we have an obligation to slow down so they all can be on the same page? The metabolism of the world we are living in is operating at strides that are difficult for us to digest. Look at the events of the past week and the past months. We were all devastated to hear the news of the untimely death by suicide 
of actor Robin Williams. Before we could even scratch the surface of the realities of mental illness, which Williams suffered from, Ebola came to Atlanta, and we were focused on the next plague to affect the United States. Then Joan Rivers died, and we pivoted to a national conversation on malpractice. But before we could say the words tort reform, Ray Rice's video of him punching out his then-fiancé, Janae, on a public elevator in Atlantic City surfaces. And only 72 hours deep into the national conversation about spousal abuse, Adrian Peterson, the star running back, is arrested for beating his kids with a tree branch. And now we're embroiled in a conversation about corporal punishment when the next victim of ISIS is publicly beheaded. And we pivot to a conversation on global anti-Semitism. And all of this happens so quickly that we start to ask the question, did Robin Williams really die? Before we even acknowledge that we did nothing to address the nature of his death or why it was that Tyler Clementi died or what really happened in Israel this summer, the good and the bad. We barely have the energy to start the long-suffering process of waiting to see who won the war. We have to slow down. We are running individually, and we are running as a nation, and we are running as a society and as a tribe on all cylinders. And we are approaching warp speed. And at that pace, we can't digest. We can't process. We can't consider. We can't properly talk. We can't reflect. And all of these things are very necessary. I think of the challenge Abraham and Isaac face in light of the Torah portion we read for today. They go up to the mountain, Isaac's almost sacrificed, and suddenly he isn't. But before the experience can be processed, Isaac and Abraham descend the mountain only to find out that Sarah, Abraham's wife and Isaac's mom, is dead. And immediately they have to take care of her burial and then finding a wife for Isaac because Sarah can't take care of his, her son anymore. And the opportunity to process what happened evades Abraham and Isaac, and it clearly affects the shaping of their lives from there on out. God needed a day to process. Today is that day. It's the anniversary of the creation of the world. God worked for six days creating the world that we live in, but God also took a day to stop and to process and appreciate what was made. That's called Shabbat, and it's literally today. We'll sing in just a few minutes, Hayom Charat Olam, today is the birthday of the world. Every seven years, we're told that the land and our creations in Israel need a chance to reset, to hit pause, and that's called Shemitah, which we happen to be entering this year in Israel as well. When someone dies in Judaism, we are demanded to take seven days, called Shiva. During that time, regardless of the pace we're running at, we're forced to pause, to slow down, and we're given a gift by our rabbis. The gift is the ability to process. Too many people today, they try and curb Shiva. Three days, four days, they say, Rabbi, my mom wouldn't want me to sit that long. I just need three or four days. And what they're really saying is, Rabbi, I can't stop for that long. Because once my adrenaline and my inertia gets to that place, I can't get it up and running and I'll be so far behind. So just give me a couple days, that's all I need. I can't handle anymore. But the truth is, you can you can benefit from the time. Your heart needs it, your body needs it, your soul needs it, and your mind needs it too. It's 
It's also why Judaism celebrates a honeymoon, believe it or not. Because it's critical to have that time after such a heightened sense of joy to process the love that you have and the experience of your souls joining together. In fact, there's a lot of symmetry between Shiva, the seven days after someone dies, and the seven days after someone gets married because they are highs and lows respectively. And those days are spent processing and bringing us to an equilibrium. If we skip that, we forfeit our chance to get centered. We met with a young boy who was injured in Gaza. And one of our participants asked, what is war like? And the boy responded, war is hell. But I would contend one good thing came out of the hell of war this summer in Israel. It was Jewish unity. In my almost 41 years of life, I have never witnessed a time of such unity ever. 95% of Israelis supported the war in Gaza. And as Racheli Frankel said, we weren't affiliated or unaffiliated. We were part of something bigger. We went looking for the boys and we all found ourselves. In our own backyard, 2,200 people gathered at the Bergen Pack on a hot summer night. And one week later, 300 people gathered in our promenade here at the temple to stand with Israel and to learn more about Israel. In my eight years in this community as your rabbi, I have never seen a moment like those moments. It inspired me and it inspired many. But if we don't process that moment, if we don't take the time to relish and appreciate our unity, but simply move on to the next issue du jour, we will waste this golden lining of the dark cloud of war. We will squander this gift that's been given to us. We will lose this opportunity and we'll start moving again at a record pace and it's going to leave all of us with serious heartburn. This year, make a difference. Slow down. Digest and process. Take the long way home from work. Turn off your cell phone on the drive and turn off the radio and think and contemplate. Take 20 minutes and sit on a park bench with nothing in your hands but your heart and your mind full of thoughts and reflections. Afford yourself the opportunity to take walks and have conversations without agendas. Appreciate the time and slow down. When you have dinner with your family, put all the technology away. No outside noise. Just turn it off. When you go out to dinner with family or friends, try leaving your phone in the glove compartment. I'm sure the meal could even be more enjoyable. It won't give you a watch to look at, to run to, and it will give you a time to enjoy each other and to process. In essence, I want you all to listen to the sagacious words of my two favorite rabbis, Rabbi Simon and Rabbi Garfunkel. <laughs> Slow down, we move too fast. We've got to make the moment last. Rosh Hashanah is a time for all of us to pause. But the pause needs to last longer than the 120 minutes that we find ourselves here in synagogue. It needs to last longer than the 90 seconds until you all exit this room and start checking your emails and text messages on your phone. And it needs to last longer than the three minutes it takes till someone cuts you off during the mass exodus on Piermont Road 
you get annoyed and you start to feel anxious because you're going to be late for lunch and you think of all that's going on in your schedule and you realize that before you hit Closter Dock, you've already squandered the message to relax, to slow down, to enjoy, to process, and to digest. What a colossal waste that would be. God, on this new year of 5,775, we are moving forward, and the, the world feels darker than it did last year. There are so many events that are like rocks, and in the darkness we cannot see them, and they cause us to stumble. Help us, God. If you cannot slow down the events, then help us slow down. Allow us to make time to walk slower, and allow our eyes the ability to adjust so the rocks become shadows, and with time, the dilation of our pupils will permit us to see our obstacles and to maneuver around them. May that path lead us towards renewal. May that lead us with time for process. And may it give us hope. May that be God's will. Amen.